Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His films, his film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com, and Don posts new reviews almost daily. He holds B.A., M.A., Ph.D.s, Ph.D. degrees in psychology and counseling, and dissecting docs is dedicated to our most precious and beloved filmmakers, the documentary filmmaker. We are here to honor these brilliant creatives who give their time, energy, and sometimes their freedom to bring us the honest truth. They are our last vestige of sincere, unbiased reporters who give of their time, their labor, and put their heart, creativity, and sometimes their freedom into bringing us the truth. We will cover five shows today, American Blues, Good Morning Mission Hill, Miss Hill, The Hidden Hand, and The Greater Good. We are honored to have Leslie Manukian, the writer and producer of The Greater Good documentary film, join us later this hour on the show. And our critics are Don Schwartz and Carol Dean. And so we are very, very honored and privileged to be here. Just want to make sure that uh, everybody is online with us. We were having a little bit of difficulty, a little technical difficulty earlier. So let's just see, Carol, are you with us now? Yes, Claire, I am. Oh, great, great. And Don, of course, as well, you are with us. Yes. Well, Don, let's hear what you think of American Blues. American Blues, why I loved it. Uh, it's a documentary directed, shot, and edited by Patrick Branson, kind of a one-man band here. It was released this year, and it's self-distributed. And it is exactly as the title says. It's all about the blues. It's everything and anything you can think of about the blues. He, he interviewed performers, historians, activists, authorities, experts, and also what was interesting to me is blues influence artists, artists whose who's painting is influenced by the sound of the blues. And, and all of them testify to the, to the power and the influence of the blues on, on music, uh, the evolution of music, on our lives. And I want to emphasize uh, the, the blues is started in America, but it is totally global now. And, uh, and and this film is, in a very short period of time, gives you a complete outline of, of topics that you can uh, use and start your own, in my mind, doctorate program, your Ph.D. in the blues. And, and this is a caution. Keep a portable digital device or, or some, a pad of paper and pencil because there are so many artists that you I've never heard of before that you're going to want to listen to. So... It's it's a fun movie. It's it's as entertaining as it is informative, and I I could I could, this is one of those movies I could have twice as long. Exactly right. 
Well, see, I work for Patrick Branson as his fiscal sponsor, Don. I'm telling you, he's a lovely person, and I think he really made an incredible film. Uh, he has excellent interviews and many great stills, um, wonderful archival footage, and I'm amazed at what he did on his budget. He now is a master in the art of fair use for making this film. And did you see from the heart's name at the beginning of the film? It's such a gift from Patrick to put our name in the opening credits. I loved it. Yeah, I, 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 mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. I just found it to be an excellent history of the blues. And once you watch the film, you clearly see how the blues marked into rhythm and blues, then to jazz, and then even country. Country music has blues in it. So we have to realize that the blues is the original American music that was carried over into many other genres. And I agree with Janice Monty in the film. She said that we need to bring blues into the arts in school. And yes, we should be teaching children about this national heritage. This is our original music coming out of New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta. I think it's a tribute to the African-American race. And I hope Patrick will make a shorter version for education and sell it to schools. I think there's a big market for this. And the film is also perfect for sale to hotels, oil rigs, airlines, foreign. I think it has a very broad market base. Uh, And, Don, did you hear them say in the film that when the plantation workers were singing, they were giving secret information about the Underground Railway, like where to find it and names of places to get into the Underground? Remember that? Yes, that that was new, and that was news to me. And, and boy, uh, all the films we've had about slavery in the South, uh, I don't think that's ever been part of a narrative that's been shown, and uh, that deserves to be well-known and well-understood. Yes. Probably uh, singing was the only way they really could communicate because they're not allowed to talk much. They were there to work. They were pure workers. And uh, I always wondered why, because I grew up in Dallas with a wonderful African-American woman who raised me. And I always wondered why they walk slowly. And when you start watching some of these historical films, they were up before dawn. They worked from dawn to dusk. And they had to pace themselves so that they could last the whole day or they would get a beating. So there's so much to be learned about slavery in America and, and how they survived. It's incredible. But one of the quotes in the film is that the blues had a baby and named it rock and roll. And they say some of the blues was holy music and was played in church with the piano, and then they added the guitar and the drums. Uh, They made a good point that jazz and the blues are the same, or that jazz is an extension of the blues. Winston uh, Marshallis says that the blues run through all American music, jazz, country, and gospel. It's a music that expresses how people feel, and I really recommend the film. Okay, so tell us what you uh, thought of Good Morning, Mission Hill. Good Morning, Mission Hill. It's a sweet and inspiring film, and it it makes you want to have whatever it has in your life. It's a story about a a school called Mission Hill, and it's in... uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and the film is produced and directed by a couple, Amy and Tom Valens, and they made a film about a progressive school 
in California a while back. It was called August to June, and it covers a year in the life of a California-based progressive school, and it's in a rural setting. So good morning, Mission Hill. They they flew across a continent and, and especially across a culture, and they found a progressive school in Boston on the East Coast, and it's called Mission Hill School, and it is a public school. That's to be emphasized. And it's uh, and it is progressive. They uh, the the couple flew there five times during the 2011 and 2012 school year. And uh, Tom's on camera. Amy's on sound. Again, this is a two-person filmmaking team, and they follow the teachers. They follow the students. And what's unique about the school is that the teachers are allowed to take the time necessary to help individual students. They have a measure of autonomy in decision-making that uh, most schools don't have. Uh, and they can deal with social issues, and they can deal with emotional issues, uh, and students even have more time and more energy and more uh, 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 ability to participate in the governance, I mean the top governance of the school. So everybody, the teachers and the students, have more of a sense of, of ownership and more of a sense of community within the schools. And one of the things the students can do as a result is they can explore deeply into any one chosen subject. There's a lot of individuality uh, accessible to the students. Uh, and I, I'm going to emphasize that that, uh, that there's a, the website for this film is called goodmorningmissionhill.com. That's the website. And if you're interested in, in getting this kind, of, uh, this kind of education in your community, go to that, that website, goodmorningmissionhill.com, because the Valens have given an, just a cornucopia of help, resources, et cetera, for, you know, for getting progressive public education. So I, I love, this, love this film. I love what the, the Tom and Amy Valens have done. And, uh, uh, and Carol? Yeah, I think it's a lovely film. I think you're right. Um, it's a film that sincerely educates you on how your children could be treated at school and what a bit of love can do for self-esteem. You know, these children are really fortunate to be in the Mission Hill School. One of the things that I liked about the film was that this school had meetings with parents and teachers and included the students in discussions and decisions, and particularly on changes that the students wanted to make or that the that the educators wanted to make they they allowed the students to problem solve and submit their ideas. It's a totally democratic way to handle management and to handle schools. I thought the teachers were dedicated to the school, dedicated to education, and really dedicated to dealing with children's problems because that film for me was a really good look at the results of the increase in the various forms of autism and how schools have to deal with these serious outbreaks of emotion or anger. And these poor children have to live through this. And, and believe me, the teachers are masters at handling these difficult situations. We didn't have to do that when I went to school but there is a lot more going on in school today for teachers to deal with. They are psychologists, mediators, mothers and father figures, and then last of all, they are teachers. It 
it's a well-made film, and believe me, it's an education to see what a good school can do for children and for our community. Now, I think that this is great if you are a mother or a grandmother, a grandfather or a father. This film is really for you. Look at what your school could be like. It's brilliant. And, yes, go to the website, like Don said, because this is uh, a really educational film on the current status of the evolving education in schools. Well, it's funny that we have two films with the name Hill in it. The next is a dance film called Miss Hill, The Universal Element of Movement. So let's hear what you have to say on this film, Don. Yes, Miss Hill, and the subtitle is Making Dance Matter, and this is an example of a subtitle that says it all. And it's also an example of a, when a documentary film is by a, 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 it's essentially a biography of somebody. Uh, I oftentimes end up with my jaw dropped and in awe of the person I just saw, and that's the way I feel about this. Martha Hill, she was born in 1900 and died in 1995, and the vast majority of that life she spent exploring and especially perform, uh, uh, supporting and advocating for modern dance vis-a-vis ballet or any other kinds of dance. And she pretty much single-handedly made modern dance become part of the mainstream of performing arts. And she started out as a dancer. That that didn't work out. And somehow her her... Her passion and her intelligence and her wit and her charm, she became an organizer and a supporter, and she made things happen. She, she brought dance programs to uh, university settings, uh, and, and she, she did this up until the very, very end of her life. She, 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 she died with her boots on, I would like to say, or I guess dance shoes on. <laughs> but uh, but again, it's called Miss Hill, uh, Making Dance Matter, and it's distributed by First Run Features. Oh, I don't want to forget this, Carol. Uh, the director is Greg Vanderveer, and it's Vanderveer in a way I've never seen it before, V-A-N-D-E-E-R. And then the, sep- the, the second word is V-E-E-R, so Greg Vanderveer. He did a great job of covering uh, an amazing woman. Yes, totally agree, he did. Um, you know, we have music stored in our DNA, and so to watch a film like this only opens up that part of us that really loves music. I think this is a brilliant film about modern dance. Uh, and after seeing this film, I really understand this dance form better from learning about Miss Hill and the other dancers, how the how the dance was created, evolved, and uh, what it really means to the dancers, to and how the music relates to it. It was a great education. I think the filmmaker did a wonderful job of showing us how modern dance was born and how Miss Hill dedicated herself to this dance form. She really helped birth them. And I like the part about the Bennington School of the Dance for the study of modern dance in America. It was designed to bring together leaders and students interested uh, in an impartial view of the important trends in dance. And Miss Hill brought in Martha Graham and all the top dancers from New York City to teach students 
and she had a brilliant idea because these teachers all came from different groups, and once they got to Bennington, they became a family, and they began to share ideas. So it was a perfect place for modern dance to take root and grow. And Bennington did something for the modern dance with this support that garnered momentum and went into the future. These people wanted to create a dance that was indigenous to America, and so they did. They they found a new horizon, and they moved forward with this brilliant dance form. It's a way to express yourself with your body, which all of us need, especially today when we're sitting in front of computers and televisions. This kind of movement frees you up for many things. Writers use this movement to open themselves up for new ideas. There are writing classes, Don, where you write, and then you get up and you do some dancing, and then you go back and you write some more. It's the thing that frees your mind and opens your creativity. So I say that watch this film because Miss Hill will get you moving again. So actually, Don, today we covered the birth of the modern dance, which is an American dance form, and an American music form today. So now let's go way out uh, on the limb and talk about The Hidden Hand. Tell us your review. The Hidden Hand is a documentary film about the UFO alien ET phenomenon. And it's unique in the sense that it, it doesn't focus on any one aspect of it. It's, it's, uh, essentially, it's comprehensive. It, it, it covers the various and sundry kinds of a phenomena, and the 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 subtitle of of the film is a government the government cover up, and I would say that that, that issue of the uh, government cover cover up is one topic of the film. But again, the film is about very several other topics. Uh, a gentleman named Richard Dolan, D O L A N, appears several times in this film, and he's written two books about UFOs and the, quote, national security state. And so if you if you want to know about specifically government cover-ups, you are referred to Richard Dolan and his two books. Uh, in the film cov- covering lots of different t- topics, another gentleman that appears is named Paul Hellyer, H-E-L-L-Y-E-R. And, and Carol, I would say his was the most dramatic uh, appearance in the film because he was uh, Minister of Defense uh, for, the, uh, for Canada. He was a sem- senior member of the cabinet, uh, and uh, that is a, a position similar to the current position of the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. And Paul Hellyer came out loud and strong that uh, he, he knows about the existence of aliens and UFOs. That was a very powerful, I would say the single most powerful presentation in the film. One of the things I liked about The Hidden Hand, given that it covers various and sundry aspects of aliens and UFOs, is that he refers to the spiritual and interdimensional aspects of the UFO ET phenomenon. And I think that's important because we tend to think of uh, our universe and galaxies and stars and planets and where do these folks come from, uh, if, you, if you even uh, begin to accept that. And it, typically we're trying to look for uh, signals from 
various pla- from from planets and other galaxies or our, our galaxy, but there's a possibility, if not a probability, that what's uh, stifling the search is that it's a search in our dimension. And so I think one possible uh, alternative is that this is an interdimensional phenomenon, so we have to get beyond our dimension. And uh, current physics is is exploring the concept of interdimensionality as we speak. Another thing I want to say about the film, Carol, is uh, John Mack. John Mack wrote two books. One's called uh, Abduction. The other's called Passport to the Cosmos. And I was really happy to see James Carmen include reference to John's, John Mack in this film because John Mack was a, a Harvard psychiatrist who treated people suffering from PTSD associated with having been abducted. And uh, those those two books, again, Abduction and Passport to the Cosmos, are very powerful films about this phenomenon. And, uh, and thank you, James Carmen, for giving us uh, an anthology of U- alien UFO phenomenon. Well said, Don. I have to admit that uh, I've been to Contact in the Desert with my daughter, Carol Joyce. We've gone two different years now. And what you find are a lot of PhDs, physicists, top writers, ex-jet pilots for the U.S. Air Force, researchers, all all of these that I'm speaking of that we watched or listened to are credible. These are credible people. And this year, Stan Friedman was there. And Stan, I think you would remember, he's the guy who ran the blue book for the U.S. government where all the UFO sightings were reported. And uh, he's very credible. You remember hearing about the blue book, Don? Oh, you bet. I've I've read and seen everything I can about this phenomenon. Well, it's interesting. We have to pay attention to it. There's something going on here. Um Anyway, I listened to Jim Mars. He's a fellow Texan, and he's well-respected as a writer. And, uh, you know, when Jim Mars starts talking, you go way back to Sumerian time, and you come all the way forward, and he has this whole see-through of UFOs uh, being here for millenniums. UFO sightings and all these things are really well-documented. But I have to say to you that um, when you mention something about looking in our own universe, I will tell you that to the Barney and Betty Hill story, which became so famous, they were abductees by uh, aliens from Zeta Reticuli. Now, if you go to uh, your astronomy and you look at Zeta Reticuli, there are twin planets, right? Very close to each other. So every day they got up and they saw their twin planet, but they couldn't get there. So that would have propelled them to build spacecrafts early on to go to their twin or their neighboring planet because they knew that life could exist there. It was in a similar place as theirs, and they were right. So it makes sense when you look at the abduction from the idea that the Zeta Reticuli would have created some type of space travel, and they then came into uh, came down to Earth. Anyway, it's all pieces of a puzzle that you just keep listening and put stuff together. And I heard while I was there a um, U.S. Army ex 
fighter pilot who had seen UFOs, and it was not so much what he had seen, but he had what he had documented that he brought to us. And one of the things was Buzz Aldrich, in an interview, had said, we have to put more money into space research because when you look at that puny uh, potato-shaped moon of Pluto and you know that there is a monolith on it, we have to get some more money and start doing interstellar, interstellar space travel. So inadvertently, he admitted there's a monolith on one of Pluto's moons. So it's another piece of the puzzle. But at this mm-hmm. convention, I listened to Michael Tellingerton, who talks about ancient ruins and banished civilizations, mostly in southern Africa. He's well-educated and he's very credible. But the creme de la creme for the belief that there's something going on here is an attorney that we listen to who is a attorney for the Jesuit priests. And he has been charged by the Catholic Church, or so he said in front of over 2,000 people, uh, he's been charged by the church on how to language the information that UFOs exist and there are other life forms in the universe. So he's got to go back to the Catholic Church and say, here's how you bring this to the people. And uh, so back to the hidden hand. I think they did a very good job of giving an excellent overview of information to people um, that's pretty much up to date on UFOs and extraterrestrials. So it's good to keep your mind on what is hidden and what is not being talked about on television, except for films like Paul, which we saw, which has an alien in there, and it's hysterical. But the interesting thing is, Don, the alien becomes a, you like him. They made his eyes very loving, very kind. And his character was just like a human. He's not all good. He's not all bad. He's a a genuine human being is what they created in this character. So um, I loved loved the fact that we went out on the limb to honor this film. Now, the most exciting part today is The Greater Good, and we're so honored to have Leslie with us, the writer-producer of The Greater Good documentary. She's going to join us after our reviews. And I'll just say to you that I think this is a wonderful film to, to bring you to the other side of vaccinations and shots that are marketed to us on TV and online. The question is, what happens to people once they've had these shots? And this film goes into detail to explain it. It has a great balance to it. We learn and we see both sides of the issues. Uh, I remember reading some time ago what a very small percentage of people actually have cervical cancer. And I've been telling young women to be aware of the fact that they are not prone to get this. It's not a, a raging epidemic or anything, but people still get the shots. So after looking at this film, I know I was right because Leslie tells us that it's three per 100,000 deaths are of cervical cancer. Uh, but when you watch the million, multi-million dollar advertising they do on TV, you would think that you were really in danger. So I think it's important for people to know in many countries that 
drug companies are nonprofit. Not in the United States. In the U.S., they are profiteers. And we need to think about corporate greed behind the making of our drugs. And we need to be sure that we read all the side effects. And they are not to be poo-pooed or considered, well, you know, it's a small, small percentage of people that get that. That You could be that small percentage. So you have to look at it with that in mind. But the Greater Good film introduces you to a sweet teenager who's been harmed by Gardasil. And once you see this film, you'll see the other side of vaccines and their potential damage to the human body. I want this film to drive people to read the side effects. I think that's the key. But the greater good is really an eye-opener for me uh, because back some time ago I went to India, and, of course, I got my shot for cholera, and I was coming home on the plane, and I started running a really high fever, and I started hallucinating. And uh, when I saw Jesus walking down the aisle, my companion freaked out. And so she told the stewardess, and the stewardess set it up so I was whisked away the moment the plane landed in Hawaii. And I was so sick that I lost track of time. But I remember in the hospital a sign saying, nothing by mouth. And I didn't know if I was going to live or not. So I spent my Christmas hospital, and the Christmas in this hospital, and finally, I was awake when a doctor came by, so I said, hey, what's, what have I got? And he said, diverticulosis. I said, that's baloney. <laughs> Whatever I have is much worse than that. And he walked over closer to me and said, you're right. But the cholera you have came from India, and we're not reporting it because what would you think if you heard Honolulu had a case of cholera? So I said, but, you know, I took my shot, and he said, they don't work. So I'm living proof they don't work. And and I think a lot of doctors know this, and they give them to you and never tell you they may not work. But it, And because if they did, we would appreciate that fact, and I think we would be so careful and never take any risk. I didn't take any risk, but I had the feeling that I'd never get it because I had a shot. So... I think this is a fantastic film, and I'd like to hear what you think, Don. Uh, thank you, Carol. Uh, the Greater Good is one of those documentary films that I've been waiting for. So I'm eternally grateful uh, to Leslie for for the film. Uh, it's, it is about the dangers of child, especially childhood vaccinations, and I've been the listening to and hearing, seeing, watching the public dialogue uh, about vaccinations. And, and it is a dialogue that is dominated by dogma. The dogma uh, is reduced to two, two forms. All vaccines are good or all vaccines are bad. And that is a, a no-win uh, no argument uh, for the whole our whole culture, especially for children, uh, and I'm quite disappointed in a lot of the uh, of the people that uh, that that take the all vaccines are good dogma. Uh, these are the same people that poo poo global warming deniers, saying, "Oh, they're ignoring science." Well, the people who are saying that all vaccines are good 
are ignoring science themselves. And for the most part, it's, it's uh, their own fault, uh, but also uh, the, the, uh, the availability of yellow light and red light cautions about vaccinations, and that information is, is hard to find. And what uh, Leslie Manukian has done is made it a lot easier to find cautionary information about vaccinations. And the bottom line is that uh, given that not all vaccines are equal, uh, parents need to simply know uh, what each and every vaccine is and its uh, risks and benefits and make a decision on each and every vaccine. And parents need to have the right to make that decision. And, and I also want to say something else about the greater good. The, the uh, website that uh, Leslie has put together is incredible. It has anything and everything you need to learn uh, about the dangers of vaccine and how best to handle them. And the website is greatergoodmovie.org. Again, greatergoodmovie.org. And I also want to get back to uh, the film itself. Uh, Leslie Manukian is the writer and producer, and it is directed by Kendall Nelson, first name K-E-N-D-A-L-L, Nelson. And the film is self-distributed. And that's it. Well, it's fantastic. So you introduced Leslie for us. I'm excited to meet her. Oh, yes. Oh, I, I'm, I am excited, too. Uh, so, Leslie, this is her first documentary film. Uh, it is an award-winning film, and uh, she has been working on the vaccination issue for about 15 years, so she is a hero. This is her first documentary, and I can't wait to see what else she's going to do. So, uh, Leslie, Welcome. Hi, Don. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Carol, we can we can uh, take advantage of Leslie and ask her any questions. But do you want to okay. say how you very what first got you into the vaccination issue? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say I've seen The Hidden Hand as well, and I think it's superb. So for all your listeners out there, I'm going to concur with the two of you. <laughs> it's a great film and a really important um issue, I think, to, to investigate. So are vaccines. Now, I was a Wall Street executive, had no idea that there was any downside to vaccines. I thought they were the greatest invention of humankind. And um, I was having all sorts of health problems, and my very mainstream doctor in London, England, where I was working, told me that he thought that he couldn't help me, that Western medicine couldn't help me, that he'd done all these tests, and that I should go and see a homeopath or an acupuncturist. This was way back when um, I was, like I said, you know, a Wall Street executive. I was working in finance, managing um, European portfolios. And his, um, his prompting, though, um, was what all I needed to go and start seeing a homeopath. And this homeopath that I saw in London changed my life, so much so that I enrolled in homeopathy college in secret, although I was the director of this group. And... Um, the very, very first day in homeopathy college, the one of the people who was doing orientation said that we were going to talk about all sorts of issues over the next few years of our studies. One of them was the mind-body connection, another one was nutrition, and another one was vaccine damage. 
And I raised my hand and said, you know, what are you talking about? You're out of your mind. Vaccines are the greatest invention of humankind. And he said, well, that's one perspective, but I am, there's more to the story. And he urged me after the class to go and read a book um, called Neil Miller's Vaccines, Are They Really Safe? It's called Vaccines, Are They Really Safe and Effective by Neil Miller. And um, he just, you know, pushed me to read the book. I read the book, and I was absolutely stunned by what I read. I couldn't believe that any of it was true. And being the sort of financial analyst that I am by nature, I decided that I had to dig deeper for myself. And I went to the president of the college and, you know, with the book in hand, sort of shaking it at her in anger because I was really quite upset about it. This book documented death after vaccinations, um, rheumatoid arthritis, seizures, brain damage, asthma, allergies, all sorts of complications after vaccines. And, and like I said, my perspective was that they could do no harm. And so I was really, really disturbed by this. And I went to her and I said, you know, how can this be true? I was shaking it at her. And she just looked at me and she sort of shrugged her shoulders and she said, I guess money. And I just knew then and there, it was about 15 years ago that I was going to, that I felt called, literally, very much called to investigate this issue for myself um, make a movie on it and share with the world what I learned because I didn't want to take what this man had written in his book, you know, just take his word for it, even though the book was documented with over 900 footnotes. So that was really oh the genesis God. of it. Oh, my gosh. Well, then you were looking at the daunting task of learning how to make a film. How did you, how did you do that? <laughs> well, that was why I brought into... Um, Two people. I mean, and, and when I say it was divinely inspired, I literally, within two weeks of finishing rebuilding my house here in Idaho, where I live, I'm, I was seated at a women's luncheon next to a woman who, Kendall Nelson, who was a filmmaker, and we started talking. And I said, "You're a filmmaker. Well, want to help me make a film?" And literally, the week before that, I had met a man who um, who was a successful filmmaker and had several films at Sundance, award-winning films and things like that. And so I asked the two of them if they wanted to help me make my film. And um, and so we, you know, I had been researching the issue already basically for six or eight years at that point. And um, I wanted to make, I knew that this was one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial issue that we face today in not only our culture in the U.S., but around the world. Every country is having these issues. And, um, you know, was having this discussion. And I knew that given how um, controversial it was that I wanted to make a film that was going to be perfect, you know, cinematically perfect or as close to it as we could in terms of its technical execution and its, you know, its quality and everything. And we, we entered, you know, the film to for an Oscar. We did two th- theatrical releases, one in Los Angeles and New York. We just wanted to make it as good as we possibly could, knowing that if there was anything, you know, if there were any flaws in the production of the film, um, that would detract and that would be enough for people to not to dismiss us. And so... Um, I didn't want to get a video camera and try and make it myself is basically the answer to that question, Carol. (laughs) Well, yes, I can understand that. No, because with the amount of study you put into this issue, you really need it to be, as it is, a a high-profile piece where people get so lost in the information and the way you're presenting it that, that they are glued to the screen. Um, for non-believers and for believers, it is a fabulous film. It really opens 
a lot of eyes because you have documented it so well. And I can even, I can imagine that what we saw was maybe one-tenth of what you really uncovered while researching this because if you were to put it all together, you would have a dozen films or more, right? Absolutely. In fact, every single line in there is essential and 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 introduces another point which you could drill down on. So I'd say it's a thousandth of the information that's out there, really. Um, you know, one of the things we wanted to do with the film was to help people to understand that vaccines are, that, you know, if we look culturally, there's a, a message that's put out there, and that is that vaccines are totally safe and that they are totally effective. So, you know, one of the things that we realized through doing all of our research and meeting all these families is that vaccines aren't as effective as we're led to believe, and the safety of them is overestimated as well. The risks are underestimated. And we didn't want to just do a, you know, a factual scientific brain dump on people. We wanted people to understand that these are real human beings who are being injured. These are real babies who are dying, real 16-year-olds who are suffering after the Gardasil vaccine, who are having seizures and vasculitis and um, other problems, and kids who are suffering with learning disabilities. And we didn't want to just show the science because, of course, you know, people need to understand that these aren't just statistics. These are human beings. And so we really wanted to tell the stories. And so we present in the film, the, you know, three families and their experiences and then interweave the science and the expert witnesses with that. Yes, I totally agree. I love that. I just fell in love with that suite. Her name was Gooby. Gabby. Gooby Gabby. Gabby, yeah, Gabby. Gabrielle is her long name, but she goes by Gabby. Gabby is so adorable, and when she says, I don't know why I'm making Fs, I don't understand it. That I truly, my heart went out to her because she's saying to me, I'm the same person I was before when I was an A student, and that something happens, and here I am, and why am I making Fs? It was un. Believable, and but her attitude of being happy and ongoing uh, on a daily basis it was really heart touching, don't you think? Yeah, um, she's just a remarkable young woman. She's now a little bit over twenty. She is okay. She still has seizures, but they um, have to be controlled through medication. But she's she's much better than she was a few years ago when she had a seizure that lasted for four minutes and and um, they couldn't revive her. It was just before Christmas a couple of years ago. But she's just amazing because she is, I think she's a real inspiration because she has undergone this, you know, really, really heartbreaking injury. I mean, she is one of those walking wounded, a casualty of vaccines that you can't tell anything on the surface. She looks fine physically, but she can't focus. She has chronic fatigue. She is. Um, she struggles to remember anything anymore. She has inflammation inside of her body, so she's getting sick more and often, and things like that. And yet, she has this just beautifully positive attitude, as you mentioned. So she's just a really remarkable young woman. Well, you chose well with her for the film. So I, I just want to say I was shocked to learn that in 1980 there were 23 doses of seven vaccines. And now we have 69 doses of six vaccines. What's going on? <laughs> well, what is going on is that in 19, um, in the early part of the 1980s and the late part of the 70s, there were numerous lawsuits 
um, by parents whose children were catastrophically injured by vaccines. Brain damage, death, really, really horrible things. And a lot of them, not just a couple. So there were a slew of lawsuits against the pharmaceutical industry for their vaccines. And what happened was the pharmaceutical industry basically said to Congress, if you don't provide immunity from this, you know, provide um, liability protection for us and protect us from these lawsuits, we're going to stop making vaccines completely. So in 1986, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act was passed and signed into law. And this National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act provides blanket immunity for any kind of prosecution or financial liability um, for the pharmaceutical industry and any physician or any other person who gives a vaccine. So no doctor, no pharmaceutical um, company, nobody bears any liability anymore when vaccines cause damage. And the law recognized that vaccines injure and kill some people. They said, you know, look, it's very clear, the science is clear. And vaccines are even legally recognized as unavoidably unsafe. Um, So that's the legal recognition. We have this federal law recognizing that vaccines injure and kill. And that law set up a compensation program where parents and other people, you know, adults who get injured by vaccines, can apply and get money so they can get compensation. And the way that it's funded is through a 75-cent tax that's levied on every vaccine sold in America. And what happened as a result of that was the you know, Congress intended that parents would be able to go to the system and easily apply and easily get compensation for the injuries that their children had suffered or the death of their children. And what happened was they basically wrote a blank check for the pharmaceutical industry because now oh. the pharmaceutical has no – now that they have zero liability, well, geez, why don't we make a new vaccine? Let's, let's, let's just invent any vaccine we possibly can. And you know what? If people won't take them, we'll get – the CDC to recommend them and therefore almost force children to have them. So what happened was, if you look at early, the early 1980s, children were receiving 11 doses of four vaccines in their first year of life, 11 doses of four vaccines. Today, a child will receive 26 doses of nine vaccines by the first birthday. Wow. Now, I mean, Carol, you've been around a little bit longer than me, not a lot, but do you really think that in 1986 that the world was so scary and children were dying all over the place that we needed to add, you know, a dozen more vaccines and triple the number of doses given? Of course not. But that's exactly what's happened. So we're now getting vaccines for things. I mean, like meningitis is now being pushed across the nation. In the in the state of um, New York, they just passed a mandate for the meningitis vaccine for all adolescents. There are 500,000 kids in New York, there are, I think it's five to seven cases of meningitis every year in the state of New York. That's it. And they want every one of those 500,000 kids to get the meningitis vaccine. And guess how many, maybe it's 400,000. There are either four or 5,000. I think it's 1% is the serious adverse events after that vaccine. So they're going to injure four to 5,000 kids supposedly to protect five to seven children who might get meningitis. This is this is not about public health. This is about corporate profit. Oh, my gosh. This is outstanding information. Oh, thank you so much. I have to tell you, when uh, I, my daughter was born, I didn't want to give her the vaccine. I had read some things saying that it was really dangerous. 
So I lived in Encino Hills, a very nice area in Los Angeles. And one day a woman came to my door. She drove all the way from downtown L.A., maybe an hour drive or so out there and an hour drive back, knocked on my door and said, you haven't given your daughter her vaccine. I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I will take care of that immediately. Closed the door and realized there has to be a lot of money in this or who would pay this professional to drive all the way out here to one home and tell me that I have to get my daughter. She came to shame me, Yeah, I think. Absolutely. They came to to do it. Shame you and pressure you, without a doubt. And that's why, you know, you're in California, and Don's in California. Um, It's really important for um, listeners everywhere, not just in California, but California has just passed a law that's going to mandate, that, that mandates vaccines for all children in the state of California. Um, unless they can get a medical exemption from a doctor, which is almost impossible to obtain, or else they're homeschooled. And these kinds of laws are happening all over the world. In Australia, the government has just um, passed legislation that says that any parent who receives any kind of government aid must must vaccinate their children or they will lose their aid. This is extortion. And the question is, if vaccines are as safe and as effective as they are alleged, why are they having to force parents to use them? Exactly. And here's a good question for you. Your film says autism is jumping 10 to 17% a year. That's a shocking number. If you look back to 1980, the rate was 1 in 10,000 children. Today, the CDC acknowledges on its website that it's 1 in 68 children. Oh, they, no. they actually did a telephone survey last year, and in that telephone survey, the results were one in 50, and four times as many boys. So we're looking at, I think it's one in 32 or 33 boys have um, autism today, and it's even higher in some places. I think in uh, Utah and New Jersey, they've got a rate of something like one in 25, one in 28, somewhere in that neighborhood. And this oh all God. happened with the, you know, huge increase in the number of vaccines that were given. And there's plenty of science showing that the ingredients in vaccines are linked to neurological damage. The mercury, which is still in vaccines, even though CDC says it's all been taken out, that's just not true. And there's tons of aluminum in vaccines now. And in most of the vaccines that have been brought onto the schedule in recent years contain aluminum. Um, but... Um, there is essentially no science showing that it is safe to inject either of those into human children or human adults. I read it also has formaldehyde in there, in some of them. Yeah, well, many the vaccines contain a very um, interesting mixture of ingredients. Mercury, aluminum, formaldehyde. They contain um, foreign proteins and DNA from the monkey kidneys, the... Um, Mouse brains, the chicken embryos, the aborted human fetal tissue cell lines that that vaccines are grown in. Um, Then there's also things like ethylene glycol, which is an ingredient in antifreeze. There's um, polysorbate 80, which is an emulsifier, which is known to um, penetrate the brain and actually enable these toxins to cross the blood-brain barrier. There... um, and, you know, formaldehyde is recognized as a carcinogen. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that it's carcinogenic. 
and this is being injected. And then there's, you know, there are antibiotics and so many other things. But the other thing that people don't realize is that vaccines are actually contaminated with um, viruses that they can't strain out. So there's extraneous viral and particulate matter that they cannot get out because we don't have the technology to strain it all out. And so we have found that the rotavirus vaccine that's, um, that's, that are on the market, the rotavirus vaccines, are contaminated with some pig porcine um, viruses. And, um, you know, the um, polio vaccine has been known to be tainted with viruses from monkeys. There was something called SIV-40, which has been found at the center of brain tumors and um, bone tumors. And um, it is a virus that is peculiar to monkeys, and the polio vaccine was grown in monkeys, monkey tissues, monkey kidneys. So there's all this stuff in there, Carol. It's not just the aluminum and the mercury. And the reality is that we don't know how all of these things interact or what they're doing to the human body. We do have some ideas, but um, we don't know all of it, you know. Well, I, um, I saw in that one film we did, Good Morning Mission Hill, um, some children that just were, they were fine, and then they just exploded with anger and, and went into this fit. One boy did, um, and others went into this autistic attitude of, of going back within themselves, and I I may be wrong, but that looks like various forms of autism or reaction to some of these shots to me. So the schools must be full of that now. Well, today, so just to give you a um, and, and listeners a, a context, 54% of American school children have a chronic illness or a disability. And these chronic illnesses and disabilities range from things like asthma and allergies to things like learning disabilities, speech delays, behavioral problems, ADHD, ADD, autism, diabetes, obesity. And these things are all connected scientifically to vaccines. We're told in the mainstream media that there's no science substantiating that, but there, is, there are dozens and dozens of studies on all of these things. And, in fact, on our website, greatergoodmovie.org, I have actually uh, compiled what I have called a catalog of science. And this catalog of science contains links to over 200 studies that document and explore all these issues. So when you say that these kids are, you know, sort of exploding or withdrawing, yes, this this is happening because they have brain damage, because their nervous system nervous systems have been inflamed by the vaccines and the ingredients in them. And there is plenty of science showing that the vaccines themselves and the ingredients in them cause these problems. Um, and today, I think that the numbers are, if you look nationally between one in five and one in six children has a neurological impairment, learning disability, something like that. That's just in the United States. And the United States, to put it in context for your global listeners, is the most heavily vaccinated population on the planet. We give more vaccines than any other nation, and we have the highest infant mortality rate of any developed world nation. We're below Cuba. Oh Leslie, my gosh. Leslie, I have a... a when a, a question about the movie. Uh, okay. What, what, how, what has been the response? What, what kind of support you've, have you received? What kind of pushback have you received since the movie came out? Well, we have had um, a tremendous response from many, many corners and a very vehement, angry response from a couple of very directed, um, directed um, corners. 
you know, we applied to film festivals and got into tons and tons. But the biggest ones and the most well-known, we were told that they wanted to show the film, but they, that their hands were tied. We literally were censored by a couple of the most, two of the most prominent film um, festivals in the nation. The most prominent one, you know, the essentially said to us, we love it, we think it's beautiful, it's brilliantly made, um, but my hands are tied. That's what we were told by the director of programming. And that happened more than once, Don. Um, we had fantastic reviews from most of the media initially, and then once somebody caught on, it seemed that there was an effort to really undermine us. So the New York Times did nothing short of a smear piece on us. They lied. They changed the story online. They did all sorts of things. They accused us of, of, of complaining about the, the review, and we had never done any such thing. And when we queried it further, they basically said that they'd gotten a call from an anonymous reader. I mean, they literally fabricated things about the film, and they were just dishonest about the content of the film. Um, and the, the New York Times is notoriously negative towards anyone who dares to suggest that there might be another perspective on vaccines than the vaccines are necessary, vaccines save everybody, and vaccines are perfectly safe and effective. So that kind of thing's happened. From the public, we have had literally, um, we've had, we think, about 5 million views, over 5 million views. We've been on television in stations all over the world. Um, the film was in festivals all over the world. We won several awards and were nominated for many more. Um, and we have had, you know, thousands and thousands of people write to us and tell us how it opened their eyes, how they didn't get it before, how this really helped them to understand. And I can just tell you my personally, you know, I had many, many friends who I'd say, you know, there's more to it than, than what you know. No, 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 vaccines are the greatest, they would always say. Once they watched the film, I had many people come up to me and say, I understand now. I get it. They understand that there's you know, collusion between the corporate world and these health agencies that have really been captured. They understand that the doctors, although they mean really well, just don't know the whole story because their education is to a large part being funded by the pharmaceutical industry. They understand that um, all those allergies and asthma and all those problems are you know, potentially linked to the vaccines that their children are receiving. And they remember that their child had a terrible fever or that their child had, um, you know, changed their mood or they had a rash or they got diarrhea or something happened after vaccines and they just were never the same again or they got chronic ear infections. And now they understand that the vaccines actually were probably the trigger for that. And so we've had just phenomenal response from most people. It's been Fantastic. an unbelievable journey, yeah. When you say 5 million views, is that views of the film or the trailer or the film? No, we believe the film has been seen by about 5 million people because it's been on television in many countries all over the world. It's been, you know, Mercola.com, um, which is one of the, which is the largest natural health website in the United States, and I think it is globally. They, the first year that they screened it, had, I think, 700,000 views. Um, and they've screened it several years. And we've been on many, many different websites. We've been on faith-based networks and things. So, yeah, we think it's been about 5 million people now. Thank heaven. That is brilliant. Well, may I ask, um, how on earth did you raise the money for this film? Because there's so I would think that getting grants might have been tough. Were you able to win many grants? 
<laughs> tough isn't 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 the beginning of it, Carol. Um, it was impossible, but as I said, I felt called. I believed the whole project was divinely inspired. I really believe that. I was very much called to make this film, and when I was ready, two experienced, brilliant filmmakers were you know brought into my life, and we made a you know a beautiful piece of art. And the way that we did that was because people came into our lives. When you said that, um, um, you know, you look at the different people in the film, they were all, almost all of the people in the film, some, like I'm getting my hair done and talking about the film to my hairdresser, and the woman not too far from me, and I'm speaking very quietly, leans over and says, my daughter's baby died from that. Oh, and yeah. That is Stephanie Christner. She's in the film. It was her mother who was sitting there. I mean, you know, you can't plan this. These things happen. When I moved into my new ha- neighborhood, I met one of my neighbors, and I was. she said, you know, to me, she's a very connected, very um, affluent woman, and she said, you know, she was asking me what, what my sort of passions were, and I told her, and she said, I have a very dear friend in Washington, D.C. with very deep pockets. I will connect you with her. And a year later, I was having lunch with her and Barbara Lowe Fisher of the National Vaccine Information Center, and she gave us a grant. So all these things happened. It just came together in the most beautiful and all I can say is divine way because all of the major grant you know, channels, all the major foundations said no with the, without, a, without batting an eye. But there were all these people who knew about it, who understood and they were brought into our lives somehow. And so we raised, you know, a very, very large amount of money through, you know, we had a, a greater than a million-dollar budget, and we raised all of that. Oh, congratulations. I didn't dare ask what your budget was because it's such a comprehensive film. It is really, truly a work of art. And I thank you so much, Don. You have some more questions because we're running out of time with Oakley. Oh, I, I could... I could talk to Leslie for hours. So, but thank you very much, Leslie. Well, thank you both so much for having me on and uh, you know giving us the opportunity to discuss this unbelievably important issue. I mean, I really urge all of your listeners to get involved and find out what the organizations are in their nations where they can get involved because there are moves afoot globally to take our rights away and to require all of us to be vaccinated with whichever vaccines that government decides is necessary and if we don't act we're going to lose those rights exactly well give us your website again because this is the most important thing for research for yes, people our website yes our website is greatergoodmovie.org we also have a very very active facebook page um and you can get tons of information there and you can sign up for our newsletter which we don't send out very often we only send it out when there's something really important to communicate to people but you can do that on our website so greatergoodmovie.org and greatergoodmovie on Facebook. And we're also on Twitter, but very rarely. We're not, you know, we can't do it all. We try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much. And all of us who have children and grandchildren, thank you. Great job. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. Leslie, it was an honor. Thank you so much. Dawn, wonderful as always. To be continued. Yes. Okay. Best regards. Mm-hmm. Take care. Goodbye, all. Be well. Bye. Bye-bye. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. 
create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>